the one thing that I always tell people when people ask me, like, what should I do to prepare for a disaster is I tell people, like, you should know who your neighbors are. I'm Autumn Brown, a queer science fiction writer, a theologian, a mother of dragons, and a healing justice facilitator for social movements living in rural Minnesota. And I'm Adrienne Marie Brown, author of Emergent Strategy, co-editor of Octavia's Brood, writer, facilitator of primarily Black liberation work, auntie extraordinaire, doula, and pleasure activist living in Detroit. And this is How to Survive the End of the World, our podcast about learning from apocalypse with grace, rigor, and curiosity. And to start off our show today, I'm going to jump right into a reading from Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower that I hope will give you some context for what we're about to dive into. The character is Lauren Olamina, who is the protagonist of the story in this scene. I think she's 16, 15 or 16 years old. And she is um, living in apocalyptic conditions with her family behind a gate, a big gate and walled community. Um, And she is preparing herself for the worst. Saturday, June 7th, 2025. I finally assembled a small survival pack for myself, a grab and run pack. I've had to dig some things I need out of the garage and the attic so that no one complains about my taking things they need. I've collected a hatchet, for instance, and two small, light, all-metal pots. There's plenty of stuff like that around because no one throws anything away that has any possibility of someday being useful or saleable. I packed my few hundred dollars in savings, almost a thousand. It might feed me for two weeks if I'm allowed to keep it and if I'm careful about what I buy and where I buy it. I've kept up with prices, questioning dad when he and the other neighborhood men do the essential shopping. Food prices are insane, always going up, never down. Everyone complains about them. I found an old canteen and a plastic bottle, both for water, and I resolved to keep them clean and full. I packed matches, a full change of clothing, including shoes in case I have to get up at night and run, comb, soap, toothbrush and toothpaste, tampons, toilet paper, bandages, pins, needles and thread, alcohol, aspirin, a couple of spoons and forks, a can opener, my pocket knife, packets of acorn flour, dried fruit, roasted nuts and edible seeds, dried milk, a little sugar and salt, my survival notes, several plastic storage bags, large and small, a lot of plantable raw seed, my journal, my earth seed notebook, and links of clothesline. I stowed all this in a pair of old pillowcases, one inside the other, for strength. I rolled the pillowcases into a blanket pack and tied it with some of the clotheslines so I could grab it and run without losing things, but I made it easy to open at the top so I could get my journal in and out, change the water to keep it fresh, and less often, change the food and check on the seed. 
The last thing I wanted to find out was that instead of carrying plantable seed or edible food, I had a load of bugs and worms. I wish I could take a gun. I don't own one and dad won't let me keep one of his in my room. I mean to try to grab one if trouble comes, but I may not be able to. It would be crazy to wind up outside with nothing but a knife and a scared look. But it could happen. It could happen. That preparation ends up serving the rest of the entire story and really has shaped my life in so many ways. This idea of having a grab and run pack and making sure you have your Octavia Butler bag ready to go. So in my (laughs) life, (laughs) um, Autumn, you have actually been kind of the Lauren Olamina character in my actual life, Um, a person who has (laughs) repeatedly put yourself into both professional and personal situations where you were preparing for apocalyptic conditions and how to survive um, in the wild and how to survive on the land and how to survive like um, massive disasters. So I thought Mm. that for today's show, I could just interview you um, about how we prepare for apocalypse. If you're down, are you open to that? I'm totally open to that. And of course, um, you know, I really believe in this old adage that no one knows everything, but together we know a lot. And so, of course, um, I have like my, you know, actually fairly limited set of skills. Um, It's funny because my friends who live in more urban environments are always like, I need to come apprentice with you. And I'm like, I actually don't know that much. But um, but I do know I know the things that I know. And I'll also be referencing as we're talking, I'll be referencing some of the other resources um, and other organizations and groups and folks who are out there who are doing this work, um, who you know, who may know other skills that would also be really useful for people to be thinking about. So I'm happy to like speak from my my particular position and lens. Yeah, I like that. I think we can look at it as a beginning of this kind of uh, more tangible skill level conversation. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so my first question for you then is when did you first start thinking intentionally about apocalypse and about survival? That's a really good question. Um, well, you know, so it's funny because I was thinking about when did I <laughs> when did I start thinking about it versus when did I start doing work around it? Um, or when did I when <laughs> did I start thinking, thinking about, about it versus it, when was I'll, I consciously yeah. understanding that that's what I was thinking about? And so it was funny to go back into my childhood memories and really and realize that in throughout my childhood, I have a lot of I remember that I used to do an, an intense amount of daydreaming and imagining about um, being lost at sea and um, being, you know, washed up alone on an island and having to like learn all these skills in order to like survive alone. Um, I used to really have a lot of imagination and visions of myself with a bow and arrow. Um, Mm. In fact, um, in fact, I was like, my, you have a bow. <laughs> I know my partner, my partner Genjo, gifted me a longbow um, a couple of years ago at Christmas time, and I remember being so like, um, I, I remember feeling so caught because I was like, I didn't think that anyone else knew that I was like, I have always fantasized about being able to use a bow. <laughs> 
And then like I opened this massive package at Christmas and it was this gorgeous handmade longbow. And I was like, oh, my God, my partner really knows me. Um, so I've been. <laughs> it's love. It's love. My, so I've been slowly over time learning, actually learning the skill of, of you know, uh, shooting, shooting that bow and arrow. And I'm not very good at it, but I'm like, you know, I'm slowly learning. Um, yeah. But, you know, like in apocalypse movies, like just that level of having practiced it twice would make you like Matt Damon level X. So <laughs> exactly. It's all good. <laughs> like I know from the movies that you only have to you're have right. done something like once or twice you're and right. then you're like the expert at no, it. No, so I'm the Matt, good. I'm the Matt Damon of my social group for sure. <laughs> you um, are definitely the Matt Damon so, of my life. Um, so, um, so there's so is, there is that but I also I also used to have this is strange to think about it even say out loud but I also used to have these really intense daydream nightdream vision imagination of um of the best way I can say this is like sustainable rooms. So I would, I, I had this daydream that I would kind of enter into regularly as like an escape for myself of like having a bedroom that was actually kind of like a jungle and had a space in the floor where there was like a bed, but it would pull, like you could push the bed out and there was actually a pool inside it. And like, yeah, you know, there was, but it was very lush <laughs> and like dream. there are vines <laughs> everywhere. And, 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 and I feel like, I feel like there was something, there's something in that dreaming that has to do with, you know, in a, in a weird way has to do with the way that I eventually chose to live. But in yeah. terms of, in terms of when I, which is not to say I live in a house that has like a bathtub that you can, you know, pull out of the floor. I don't, but, um, but almost. in terms of, almost, it's almost <laughs> like that. Um, but no, but in terms of like, when did I actually start consciously thinking about it? It was actually, um, so I, my, one of my first jobs, one of my first real, well, I should say one of my first serious like adult jobs <laughs> after college was, um, I went to work at, um, an organization called New York Disaster Interfaith Services. And, um, it was, you know, what it sounds like. It was a disaster service organization that was also like a multi-religious federation and existed specifically to network religious organizations, faith communities, um, churches, synagogues, mosques, and other centers of worship all over New York City. And the, 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 I initially entered the organization as a research associate and then ended up becoming the coordinator of planning and training. Um, and so a big part, I, you know, it's very typical of nonprofit organizations. It's like, oh, you're here and you seem skilled. So we're going to give you this big job. Um, and so eventually like my job ended up being to, um, coordinate the development of resources that were specifically targeted to faith communities about how to respond in disaster situations. Um, and so of, co of course, a huge amount of my work was researching you know, what happens in the aftermath of a disaster, what's needed, what is particularly what happens in urban environments and how can faith communities and places of worship actually utilize their physical sites and facilities and the, the networks that they already have in place because of uh -huh. the nature of the way those communities work. How do they utilize those resources in order to respond? Right. And of course, through all of that research and skill building that I was doing for myself and then ultimately, you know, I was, you know, often leading trainings or I was, we would coordinate an annual conference that was, you know, providing training to others. And so I was in conversation with a lot of people who had a lot of this expertise, even though I myself didn't have it. Uh -huh, um, uh -huh. And one of the things that inevitably, I think for a lot of people in that work, <clears throat> what you come to realize is that like, 
the aftermath of a disaster um, is, well, one, it's not much like what we all think of it as usually. Um, and two, there's like this enormous opportunity to reshape conditions in the aftermath mm. of a disaster. And and that once that occurred to me, it was kind of like it's, it's like kind of got stuck in my craw. You know what I mean? It was sort of like as soon as I had the thought, I was like, oh, this feels important. Mm. <laughs> and yes, yes. and of course, it was at the same time that I was really getting into Octavia Butler's work and really. So so I think it was like a combination of like reading Octavia Butler's work reading the parables and then doing this work around disaster preparedness and seeing and understanding how much the aftermath of a disaster really is an opportunity to reshape relationships, reshape conditions, reshape political conditions, reshape structures. Um, and how so often, you know, how often so much of what really goes wrong in the aftermath of a disaster has much more to do with the with interventions by the state than it has to do with anything that the community itself is doing. I mean, Hurricane Katrina is a great example of that, but there historically, and I'll, I'll probably circle back around to this later, but there's historically like many, many, many examples of disasters where the aftermath is the community like networking around cooperation and hospitality. And then the state yeah. comes in and is like martial law, you know, and yep, it's, yep. and then, and then, and then massacres happen. And then, so yeah, all kinds of stuff goes crazy nuts. So that was like a super rich, amazing answer that I feel like you touched in on all the different things. So there's just a lot of threads there that I'm just going to like pull, 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 pull. Pull the thread. <laughs> um, I want to pull the threads, girl. I want to find out everything. So, um, well, first of all, I just want to say, you know, you talked about reading Octavia Butler during that time and that that was an awakening for you. Obviously, it was an awakening for me, too. Um, and mm -hmm. you know, because I love that she not only looks at like the apocalypse conditions, like what happens here on earth in very tangible ways, but also like what happens in an apocalyptic condition when we're dealing with aliens afterwards and what happens in an apocalyptic right. condition where we're time traveling or something else is happening. So but what if there were I just feel like she approached apocalypse from a lot of places before we move on to some of the, the skill stuff. I'm curious if there's any other people, um, writers who you, or other kinds of artists who think about apocalypse in ways that excite you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, okay. In terms of writers, fiction writers, there's a few that immediately come to mind. Um, Cormac McCarthy's um, incredible, Ooh. tragic novel, The Road, is one of my all-time favorite books. Um, he's not traditionally considered like a speculative or science fiction writer, but that is absolutely like a speculative fiction novel and yep. surrounds the journey of a father and his child um, as they are navigating like a post-apocalyptic landscape and that like seems sort of like post-nuclear. You know, it's like a very mm -hmm. devastated, it's a devastated landscape that they're moving through. Yeah. Um, and again, doesn't exactly represent... Um, what I think would be a re what what I think would be most many people's realities in the aftermath of like a major disaster. But the particular way that he encounters like love, relationship and commitment in that yeah. novel is just incredible. Um, I would say um, one of the other science fiction, like explicitly science fiction writers that I love, who I think writes really beautifully um, about apocalypse is Kim Stanley Robinson. And there are two books of his that I would recommend. One, which is like very explicitly like futuristic science fiction, is a book called 2312. 
Um, it's blah, it's so good. And then, <laughs> the book, that mix, the book so like good. hurts my face because I like it so it's much. So and I try good. To smile about it. It's yeah, so it's so good and so um so visionary. Um. And and then another book that the first book of his that I ever read that's it's actually an alternative history of the world is called The Years of Rice and Salt, and um, which I think you yes. gave me right. Um, and yes, you know, I'm such a good sister because you're such a good sister. And you know, The Years of Rice and Salt, yeah. as you remember, is like it's an alternative history of the world if positing like what would the world look like if um the black death like the plague in europe in like the whenever that was the 1400s or the 1600s or earlier than that it, if that if that plague even earlier it was like earlier earlier the, whatever the earlier plague was if that had killed off the like 90 percent of the population of europe and christianity had like never successfully come a major world religion yes. what would the history of the world look like oh. um so that's a fascinating meditation on like past apocalypses. Like what, what would it look like if a past apocalypse apocalyptic moment had actually gone down really differently? Yeah. Um, and then some other science, some other books that I think touch on this subject really beautifully, um, include, you know, Nettie Okorafor's who fears death. Mm, um, and, um, China Mieville's, well, it really anything but China Mieville, but I'm specifically thinking of Embassy Town, which is one of the books of his that I've read most recently. Ugh. Um, you know, so those are all different works of fiction that have really like shaped a lot of my thinking about like, not just about like apocalypse writ large, like the idea of like everything coming to an end, but also like, what are the different things that we mean by apocalypse? Like, and I think one of the things that you and I talk about on this show is that one of the things that we mean when we say apocalypse is yeah. like the way that the way that a community's world can come to an end or a part, a way that their world functions can come to an end because of contact with a different community. Yes. You know? And so like, um, you know, so uh, Lilith's Brood is uh, Octavia Butler's Xenogenesis trilogy. Lilith's Brood is a great example of that where like it's kind of uh, twinning those definitions where it's like there's the version of apocalypse that's already happened on the planet. This is a spoiler. Pause now if you don't want to hear it. But this <laughs> apocalypse has already happened on the planet where the vast majority of humans have already been killed off. And then you have this in this species on Kali who like kind of have an intentional apocalypse that they're constantly shaping towards, which is like we are always looking for other species to genetically blend with, knowing yeah. that that means that like one way, one one community of ours, like their way of being is going to come to an end because they're going to genetically blend with this other community and create something different. And that's intentional. And we do it over and over and over again and have for, well, you know, we don't even have a real sense <laughs> in the in the trilogy of like how long the own Kali have existed that way. Right. But it seems seems like it's been the way that they've always been to their in their in their genetic memory right um so I really like that I have there's a lot of work out there that I feel like has really shaped my thinking about both intentional and unintentional apocalypse um mm. and then there is some nonfiction that I've read as well that's really shaped my thinking which I I could go I could talk about a few of those titles now unless you want me to come back to that later. uh yeah go ahead I'm I'm curious to see what you got one book that I read a few years ago that really um, kind of like shook me in a core sort of way is um, a book called The World Without Us by Alan Weissman. And it's kind of a, 
it's really interesting. It's kind of a meditation on like how the earth would recover were we to suddenly disappear. So it looks at like what would be the natural, like if tomorrow there was just suddenly no humans on earth anymore. It looks at what would be the process by which our massive infrastructure across the planet would slowly collapse and what would it like what would the what processes would the planet itself and different species on the planet utilize to recover and repair their natural environments in order to repair themselves from like human presence um, or some of the toxic ways that humans have been present. Um, so it's like drawing on things that are already happening on the planet, but then saying like, what would it look like if we just took human intervention out of the story entirely? What would the world, how would the world move forward without us? And that was, I, it was such a beautiful book to read in the midst of this, you know, all, all of this that's been going on in the last couple of decades to just remember, right. That, um, that we aren't necessary to the functioning of the planet. And so, you know, and so, and I think that this comes back to one of the core questions that we're asking in this show, which is like, how do we defend, how do we defend our right to be here? Or how do we prove that we are actually worthy of being on this planet? Because the planet would actually be fine if we weren't here. Right. Um, And that's, that's worth us thinking about. Um, The other book that I've read more recently that's really shaped my thinking about disaster is Rebecca Solnit's um, book, A Paradise Built in Hell, uh, which narrates a series of major disasters over the course of the last century um, and talks about exactly this thing I was getting at earlier about how the community response is generally rooted in cooperation, hospitality, Mm. and reshaping essential structures. And how in almost all of these cases, you can see that the actual... um, you know, there's this real disconnect between how people experience the a disaster situation and how they experience their neighbors um, and how they experience the state and the work that the state, you know, the attempts of the state to regain control in the aftermath. Um, so those would be two books that I would recommend people look at around some of these bigger questions, like how we how do we orient to the concept of apocalypse? Um, and then there's, you know, there's a lot of other great books out there, I think, that really that talk about um, that sort of give us a different way to orient to economic practices as a way of thinking about, like, how do we shift in response to apocalyptic conditions um so i think maybe you know when we when we get to the end of this conversation it might be good for us to go back and talk about some of those books like sacred economics like um david graber's possibilities like things things that are sort of like how do we actually orient to our economic practices and recognize the possibility there well and part of it i feel like you have covered or you have shifted how you approach your professional life in response to some of that thinking as well, which kind of flows into the next question. Um, for me, sorry, someone was trying to call my phone. I was like, no, it's podcast time. No. Go away. Um, go, so, away. go away. Go <laughs> away. Uh, <laughs> so um, I want to ask you, you know, you spoke about the um, disaster preparedness disaster relief job and I wanted to ask you you know from that job and from some of the other work that you've done professionally what do you feel like you've done that has increased your survival skills 
Mm, well, <laughs> it's funny um, <laughs> to think about like what what aspects of my professional work have increased my survival skills. I mean, I think um, so there was a period of time in which I was working as an independent consultant um, where I sort of like I launched my facilitation practice and for about I think I officially launched my facilitation practice in like 2007, 2008. And so for about fi a five-year period, I was primarily working as an independent contractor. And the hustle of that, I think, taught me a lot about <laughs> survival. Yes. Um, and, and because the hustle required me to learn how to like move within a lot of different systems and also required me to learn how to navigate a lot of like personal economic challenges. Um, there, that just taught me a lot about, and you know, as we talk about in the episode that we recently did on, on class and money, um, there was just a lot of learning that I did there around like the importance of advocacy, self-advocacy yeah. and clearly articulating needs and, um, uh, you know, having enough of a systemic understanding of how resources flow in our economy to be able to understand, like, where do I position myself in order to ensure that enough resources are flowing towards me and my family? Yeah. Um, so there was that that piece that was like a personal learning journey. Um, and then there was a period of time where I was running a nonprofit organization that was doing environmental justice and food justice work like here in the community that I live in. Yeah. And uh, some of the work that we were doing was really about trying to create a sustainable local food economy through a combination of um, of entrepreneurship training and market gardens like you know, getting people to move through an apprenticeship process where they were learning how to grow food and then turn that food into a product um, and then market that product to the local economy. And then we were simultaneously doing these like media campaigns to the local community about the importance of like keeping our money in our community. Um, and the community that I live in is actually a great example of like of where there is an opportunity for this work and why it's so important because the community I live in is one where, you know, it's, I live in, I live in Stearns County, Minnesota, which actually has the highest percentage of organic farms in the state. Oh, wow. Um, which is amazing. And also, um, the, the urban centers or the, the primary urban center in Stearns County is a city called St. Cloud. That is like the vast majority of the, of the, um, of uh, the infrastructure growth in St. Cloud has been strip malls. And so it's like there's this, you know, quaint little downtown in St. Cloud. There is a former rail line. There's the Mississippi River runs through the city. But then the way the city has, ge you know, infrastructurally, geographically sprawled has been through strip malls. Which, you know, and most of the companies that are taking up space in those strip malls are companies that are headquartered elsewhere. Right. So anytime you're spending your money in those places, the money is not really typically like you have to work really hard to find a way to spend your money in St. Cloud in a way that reinvests into the local economy. Yeah. And so there is this opportunity there for us to be making this argument as to why you should be. Um, investing in a local food economy um, and you know that we actually all have the values in this county in this community we we have a shared value around this so let's really live into our values yeah at the same time personally like you and your family were 
it feels like just growing more and more um, of your own food and like growing that also in community. Cause so can you share a little bit more about that piece? Like what you and your family have done personally, that's increased your survival skills. Yeah, I can talk about that. I mean, I, I would say one was, uh, moving from New York city to Minnesota in the first place and like choosing to choosing to invest in a piece of land. Um, and, and when was, you left a, New York, did you know that you were going to be living like in the wild? <laughs> like, no, no, no. Okay. It was not like the 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 initial plan when we left New York was to actually we were actually sort of thinking, oh, we'll like live in Minneapolis for a f- like a few years, and then yeah. we'll buy land, and then you know, like it was sort of a we thought we thought that there were going to be some steps along the way, um, <laughs> and um, and then through like. Uh, kind of, I would say through a series of faded accidents, we mm. ended up buying land much sooner than we expected to, you know. So it was like within two years of leaving New York City, we bought the land that we live on now. Um, and over the course of those two years before we bought this land, we were doing garden sharing with um, my in-laws and with some really close family friends. So we had a couple of different mean, spaces that we were sharing. Just that we were we we had people who had access to larger pieces of land, and so we would all plant together, and then we would all be responsible together for the management of that garden space, and then ultimately harvesting from that garden. So we have some family friends who had about an acre of space that they were gardening actively, um, and it was just two of them, and so the two of them plus my two in-laws plus my partner and I like the six of us were sharing that acre of land to garden for a period of time. Um, Oh wow. And it's, you know, and it's a great way to do it actually, because often as is often the case, one of the beautiful things about gardening is that um, you often in the summertime and in the fall, you end up having far more food than you know what to do with. And so it's actually beneficial to share your garden with others and to have other people who are like holding co-holding the responsibility of harvesting and processing all the food with you because it can be very overwhelming and once it gets overwhelming it's very easy for food to actually go to waste on the vine um because because you kind of it's easy to get behind in the work of actually harvesting Uh and processing the food and that's i think is also the beautiful lesson of of growing your own food is that like you immediately see how much abundance there actually is in the world. As soon as, as soon as you start to garden, you're like, Oh, there's plenty. (laughs) There's so much. There's so much. And it's, it really, you know, and it's, and it's not, it's not the same thing as so much every year. No, like every, every year you're going to have like something that you're growing. That's going to have a bad year, you know? So tomato, Uh growing tomatoes in Minnesota is always a hilarious experience because like tomatoes love hot, dry climates. Right. And so if you have if you have like a really, really, really wet year, then you're not going to have a great tomato situation. (laughs) And so, you know, so it's like but the same the same climate that's going to like make your tomatoes really great might also make your squash more vulnerable to pests. And so it's just like it's an interesting kind of. But you, but you kind of know that you're always going to have an abundance of something. Um, and then you kind of have to have a plan for like, who am I giving this away to? Or how am I processing this so that I don't lose it? I feel like so many of the skills you're talking about, it's like these are these like cyclical tasks. Um, and I think it's interesting because when people think about apocalypse, 
a lot of times it's like you're thinking about the, um, you know, running from the zombies or, you know, I just feel like people think about the wrong things. And it's like, actually, a lot of these cyclical tasks that you can be practicing right now are the best ways to prepare yourself for any situation that's going to require governance and making decisions together and raising food together and sharing it. Um, so I wanted to kind of get into that zone is like, what are some of the things people misunderstand about apocalypse? Um, and, and, and then what are the skills we really need, <laughs> um, that any individual can develop around apocalypse? Totally. Well, you know, and I think this is the, <laughs> This is a, a big part of why I often reference Rebecca Solnit's work, A Paradise Built in Hell, and another She's so another book that she yeah. wrote called Hope in the Dark, which I think are bo- both touch on this um, really beautifully. But I think the major thing that people misunderstand about Apocalypse is that um, it's the <laughs> one that humans turn on each other. There's a real, um, real strong narrative in our culture that like in the absence of the state we become ungovernable violent um and even cannibalistic and um which is just fascinating like I I think it's (laughs) there's the of course the conspiracy theory part of me where I'm like that's a conspiracy theory on the part of the government to make sure that we're afraid enough to still consent to their power Um, (laughs) but obviously obviously that's what it is and I mean I think that like I I don't really understand fully where some of the those deep set fears of each other come from I think I I mean I kind of do but I kind of like that particular narrative of the way a disaster happens it's just like almost never borne out by reality um in fact one of the things that people often report in the aftermath of a disaster is how much joy they feel like if they survive the immediate disaster itself like Mm -hmm. the explosion or the bombing or the flood or the tornado people often report feeling like so alive and Mm. so joyful and so connected to their neighbors um, because, because everyone's primary task suddenly becomes caring for one another and like people leave their house, their homes because right. they can't be like plugged into something <laughs> that's yes. giving them information. So they're having to go get information from each other. And so there's all these, all these ways that like disasters actually force us to like reconnect with each other and reconnect with like our most basic needs and encounter each other fully as people that I think, I think that that's the major thing that people miss is that like, they also think that disasters are wholly horrible. And I think that that's, it's, it's, it's not like it's a popular thing to say. And so I even, I feel cautious even saying it out loud, but people often experience a lot of happiness after a disaster. Um, Yeah. I really appreciate what you're teasing out too. It's like there's disaster and you started teasing this out earlier, like the distinction between disaster and disaster capitalism. Like there's the initial, which I've also heard like when people have, have survived, you know, great fires or great floods or other things where people are like, I feel really liberated. I had to change my relationship to things like there, you know, there's just this freedom that comes with it. But then, then there's that next wave of the disaster capitalism, which I think is, it seems like where a lot of the suffering and the sense of Mm -hmm. um, competition enters. Right. So there's, and there's the, there's the behavior of the state, but then there's also predatory behaviors um, that are um, often 
corporate or opportunistic in nature. So I remember this when I was still working at the New York Disaster Interfaith Services. Um, we had um, a summer in New York City where we had a tornado hit Brooklyn and a massive flood in Queens. The, it was like the same night. It was the same storm. But the way oh, wow. it was like a tornado hit Brooklyn, which was like un, like totally uh, that just it hadn't happened yeah, in like, like 80 years yeah. <laughs> yeah climate change um and then but then but the bigger and that was the big story but the bigger disaster because it, that was the big story there was a tornado it was scary um, but it only affected a few homes but the really actual disaster was the flooding that happened in um multiple neighborhoods in queens there was just intense flooding and so uh we set up some or participated in helping to set up some response centers in Queens. Um, and we started hearing stories right away about these um, small companies that would sort of like show up on people's doorsteps and offer, if you pay me cash right now, I will like do this, that, and the other to your basement. Um, and, oh, you know, wow. so there, there are people there. And what, it's a really interesting thing, too, because it's like there are volunteer groups that will come from other parts of the country. Uh, oftentimes they're missionary um, volunteer groups yep. like they're 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 rooted in like a Christian practice. So they're volunteer for Jesus. Exactly. Right. So they're, they're missionary or volunteer groups and that'll come in to do response work. But then there's also these like opportunistic <laughs> groups that will come in and, and, and they will, they will pose as though they're volunteering or they will pose oh. as though they're on like some sort of missionary situation <laughs> and then and then expect cash payment or demand cash payment or something and oftentimes they're they're getting in before the homeowner has even or renter has even figured out what level of insurance they have and what what their insurance is going to cover so they'll yeah. they'll come in and they'll be telling a particular story around how oh your insurance isn't going to cover this and blah 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 and in some case i mean one of the other things that i think everyone's kind of up against in in disaster capitalism and particularly in this moment where like the effects of climate change are becoming so serious is that like insurance companies aren't covering some yeah. of what some of what's actually happening uh, or a lot <laughs> of what's like, actually um... happening they're like we don't have coverage for that so um you know so 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 it's so you have people who are coming in and taking advantage of all of the uncertainty and yeah. um so i think that like that that's like that combination um, can actually make things very dangerous in the aftermath of a disaster. And this is one of the reasons why, you know, the, I feel like the work that we were doing with faith communities was actually really important because um, faith communities have facilities, they have resources, they have pre-existing networks, and then they're often also led by people who have influence at the level of local government and so yeah. you know it's really important for those for folks who it's I think it's really important generally for community leaders who have influence at the level of local government to be really informed about what happens in the aftermath of a disaster so that they can be prepared and also exert as much influence as possible in order to ensure that their communities aren't going to be abused whether that wherever that abuse is coming from 
one thing I'm curious about here, so it feels like the the sort of two paths, right? It's like on one hand, communities come together and are caring for each other, are experiencing joy. On the other hand, there are folks who are like, this is an opportunity to get some resources. And, you know, my first thought was like, that's so shady. But I'm also like, yeah, and we live in an impossible economy. And in yes. an impossible economy, you know, people have to hustle um, instead of being able to always go above board and whatever to, to get resources. So I, I'm curious about like what people, you know, what do you recommend folks? What are some of the things that folks can do to prepare for, develop, and then and then kind of operate in the right way during those times, right? Because I do mm-hmm. think there's something about you know, it's like if someone does show up and they're like, I do have a skill for emptying a house um, or, you know, helping you move all your stuff or whatever, then, you know, it's like, why should that person do it as a volunteer? But then there's also, how do we just care for each other first? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if that's coming out as a clear question, but. No, it's, yeah, I really, I it's a very clear question. Um, so the, the one thing that I always tell people when people ask me, like, what should I do to prepare for a disaster? Is yeah. I tell people, like, you should know who your neighbors are. Um, uh-huh. Like, you should know your neighbors. Oh, <laughs> right? I'm just like, yes, I'm yeah. set. <laughs> yes, you're like, you're, exactly. But I mean, like, you are in a great, you're, you're, your home's situation is a great example where you actually have real intimacy with everyone that lives in the building with you um and so so for me there's that that piece that's around like and this is true whether you live in an urban area rural area suburban area like you should know you should know who your neighbors are more so than just by face and name and we say hi to each other in the morning as we're getting into our cars but like you should sit at the kitchen table in your neighbor's house and like know who they are as a person and let them come into your house and know who you as are as a person because the you know the aftermath of a disaster is going to push you into each other's arms anyway but it would be nice to already have some sense of like what do you have to offer and what do they have to offer? Like what are, what are mm. skill sets that everyone might be bringing to the table potentially? Um, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of communities um, increasingly are forming community emergency response teams. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually there's, I think federally still and um, state by state, there's actually funding where you're, you can get funding to like put your, you can pull together a community group and get funding to go through emergency response training. And so you can like become a cert, a community or emergency response team for your local community. So like oh, if yeah. you're feeling really ambitious and excited, like that's always an option to like actually get emergency response training um, to know what to do. Um, Very cool. So I think that that's, that's one of those things like, And I think that there is something, too, about, like, doing a little bit of your own self-assessment, like, your own skills mapping. Like, what are the skills that I have? Like, what are things that I'm really good at? Not necessarily things that we associate to typically as survival skills. Like, I know how to build a fire. But, like... Um, like, Although that does not hurt. It doesn't hurt to know how to build a fire. And it's, yeah. I think, generally a good thing to know how to do safely. Because um, you don't want to be that person out there who's like in the aftermath of a disaster I starting a forest fire. Um, <laughs> or like I actually burned my house down because I didn't know how to start a fire. Um, yeah, so sad. So don't be that sad person. But, um, but I mean, like we all have... Um, we all have skills and gifts to offer. So, and, and I think that we we can't lose sight of how important, you know, oftentimes, oftentimes like the stories that I hear about um, 
what really meant something to people in the aftermath of a of of a disaster it's like the person who was like in the food tent making sure that everyone was getting fed for like days on end you know so like just being able to prepare food for others and like offer it with a loving gaze and a smile on your face is actually a really important skill you know what I mean like being able to sit with someone who's lost someone else and hold their hand and just be quiet with them and hold them and love them through their grief is a really important skill that like yeah you know can't be underestimated the the importance of that skill the skill of slowing down and holding each other when we're grieving about a loss that can't be underestimated in in a disaster context you know mm. um so I think I think those those are some of the things that like it's helpful just to map out like what are the things that you already have to offer um and it's helpful to map out your community and under have an understanding of like what other people have to offer or what other people's needs might be. And that's another thing that, you know, people who go through community emergency response training, one of the things that they're often trained to do is identify what the needs in their community are. So like if you're going to be responsible for responding on behalf of your community, you're going to want to know like who are the people in your community who for whatever reasons are not able to leave their home and what is the plan for ensuring that those folks are safe if there is a need to mobilize, right? That's like the great. that that's the kind of stuff that I think people should be thinking about. I want to ask you one more question. <laughs> um, and I feel like we're going long here, but I think it's yeah. worth it. So hopefully my our folks are just like, yeah, me, I, I, we think so too. Um, <laughs> um, is, you know, you mentioned moving from New York City to Minnesota um, and in large part to raise your kids in Minnesota. And this choice to raise them on the land, I think, has been such a brave and beautiful choice, you know, not without challenges, but I, it ultimately just seems like so nourishing and, and so helpful for them as mm. survivors of whatever potential futures come. So I'd love to hear you speak a little bit about raising apocalypse ready children. Yeah, I mean, um, it's interesting now as they're getting older to see, um, one, that like the high level of skill that they already do have around some stuff. It's amazing. Um, and like Siobhan has already quite a high level of skill around gardening. Um, yeah. And how at home they feel in the woods and how fearless they feel, you know, like they're not, they're not afraid of animals at all. Um, Like even if like there's a big dog that comes their way when we're out for a walk, they're just, they know exactly what to do. They're not afraid. Um, I've watched, I've watched my children like, um, like make their bodies bigger in order to frighten an animal Mm. away that like an animal that's bigger than them. Like I've watched Maraid be like, get away from me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, like they, they're just very, um, they're very attuned to like their p- particular positionality. Um, Finn just, we just had the first experience of like sending Finn like through the woods from our house to um, our in-laws house and back by himself. And that was oh, like wow. a really big deal. Um, it's funny to think about that being a big deal and to remember my own childhood and how much time I spent alone in the woods or with a friend in the woods. And like that, like even even the idea that like it's like a big deal for kids to be alone in the woods is actually kind of a new um, 
it's it's new to our generation yeah um so so there's a way in which it's like I'm also watching my kids reclaim something that like I believe should be possible um so um I I think that it's been very healing for me to like see them to see the level of like attunement and comfort and joy that they get from like being with nature um, and being in their spiritual practices. Like um, my kids are constantly making offerings. Like right now there's like multiple altar spaces set up in (laughs) different parts of the house that are like, like like Sam Genjo and I have our own altar spaces, but then the kids will like set up their own little. They'll like get little pieces of cloth and put mm. like fossils and amethyst stones and like leaves. Sometimes leaves that they pull off of plants that are alive in our house that they know that they're not supposed to pull leaves off of. And <laughs> they're like, "Well, I put it on the altar." And they're like, "Oh, is it okay that I used all this seed from the cumin jar?" And it's like, "Oh, well." <laughs> so you know what I mean. And so they're they they're really in tune with like all. All of that. Um, and and of course, as we've talked about in previous episodes, they're also they're very exposed to, you know, the, the natural cycles of life and death being out here. And so it's like so it's interesting, too, because all of this means that when we have conversations about some of the things that are happening more broadly in society, there's stuff that they can kind of understand more instinctively because of how we live or like they understand more instinctively that like. Um, the way that our society is structured results in a lot of pollution, pollution and results in climate change. Climate change results in people needing to leave their homes and move to other places. Like they're, they're starting to sort of uh-huh. see, see those cycles and understand them more instinctively, um, which is pretty powerful and pretty amazing. Um, you know, and it's, it's going to be interesting to see how, how all of this continues to evolve. Like there's the piece of it that I feel, I feel like deeply in a commitment to, um, especially as a person with like African ancestry, um, whose, you know, our ancestors were slaves. Um, I, I feel deeply in a commitment to be in a relationship with the land that is a relationship by choice. And because I understand that to be a part of like healing work I'm doing on behalf of myself and healing work I'm doing on behalf of my enslaved ancestors who were like forced to be in relationship with the land in a particular way. And, and so like, I'm trying to do that healing work and I feel like my kids getting to be in relationship with the land in the way that they are is also part of that healing journey. And I I know, I also do know that like they're at some point, the, there's a strong likelihood that they would make a different choice, that they will want to live differently than the way we live now. Um, but I'm preparing them for an eventual possibility that like the thing that I got to go and have access to, like going off to a private college for four years, like by the time they're reaching adulthood, that might not be something that people do anymore. We don't know how fast things are going to unfold Um, we do, it is, it's becoming more and more obvious and clear that like within the next 20 to 50 years, the way our society functions is going to shift radically, but we don't know yet what the shift is going to look like. So one of the things that I have been actively preparing themselves for is like, you know, you'll probably go to college, but you might not go to college. Like there might not be that 
<laughs> we right. just don't know. Like we just really don't know what we what's gonna happen. We have no idea. And so what I'm what I'm trying to prepare them for is like a life that's really defined by meaningful work rather than yeah. like a particular trajectory of steps that anyone should take in order to be successful under capitalism. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Um, so this has been an awesome conversation with you. <laughs> oh my like, God. Yes. Thank you. Um, you know, I think as we're wrapping up, um, if you were to add a couple things to a go bag, um, that Ha-ha. modern folks should have um, just ready, like I have one under my kitchen counter. Um, what would you put in yours or what would you recommend people put in theirs? Um, that's such a good question. I had made a little list cause I was like, mm, what do I think? So, I mean, like I love the list of the Lorna Lamina list. Um, I think things that I would add, especially if you can, if you have access to, to these things, one would be maps of your region, like actual physical maps that are up to date. Because one thing that many of us are no longer very good at is actually navigating <laughs> our physical yeah. environments and especially navigating them without GPS. Yeah. Um, I was like, what? So <laughs> actual maps. Um, I think in, they make more and more these days like portable lightweight water filters. I think that it's uh-huh. a great idea to have. They make them for people who are doing serious camping. Um, and so it's a great idea to have a portable water filter and a clean water bottle. Um, and um, I think the other thing that I would highly recommend is some sort of like tarp or sheet of plastic so that like if Uh you're in a situation where you're caught out of doors and need to put together some sort of portable shelter you don't necessarily have to have a whole tent um although they're like they're very collapsible very um compact tents that you can get so I mean like that's a pretty lightweight thing or fairly lightweight thing that one could get but I think that just at least having a plat because also tarps and plastic sheets have like so many multiple usages like you can sleep on top of them you could have it over you you can use a plastic sheet as like camouflage in a lot of different situations so like it's just a that's that's a really good thing to have um and then I think um you know, having like a, a portable, um, a portable cooker and portable gas is also can be a good idea if you are carrying like non-perishable food with you that needs to be cooked over a fire, but don't necessarily have time to like build a fire. You can get like the it's camping equipment essentially, but you can get these like canisters of gas that have these screw top cookers that they screw onto the gas canister itself and then you light them and they cook whatever it is that you put on top. That's great. Yeah. There's a lot of things. Like for people who are like into equipment, there's like so much out there. (laughs) Well, and you know, I think it's really interesting, right? Because I I do think I'm like, there's like stuff that you want to have ready to go. Um, And, you know, at some point we can just spend a lot of time talking about all the things that um, Octavia's characters had. But one of the things they always that I love is that they also had like, you know, 
they would bury stuff around that was like, here's papers and here's some cash and here's that's other right. stuff that's not just like right where you are. Um, so I think about that too. It's like, you know, as even as I've been going through this um, insane moment where the IRS has been coming after me, it has been helpful to know that I have um, placed resources in a few places, in a few locations um, with so other people smart. that I trust so that I I know that I can survive this period in my dignity. Um, and, you know, it's like there's lots of ways. Now, you know, I'm like, oh, the territory – that we live in is physical and the territory is also digital. And so just thinking in lots of different ways about how we keep resources and um, how we move resources. So, yeah. And like who's in your um, network and who are your safe places to go? They might not be exactly. in your home community, but you need to know how to get there. Thanks for listening to our show. We're on Twitter and Instagram at End of the World PC. We're also on Facebook at End of the World Show. You can make a sustaining donation to our show by visiting our page at patreon.com slash end of the world show. And I just want to say we're so excited that we have passed 100 patrons now. It feels like y'all really care. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. Another incredibly helpful thing you can do to help our show sustain itself is write us a review on Apple Podcasts if you're an iPhone person. Thank you for doing that. How to Survive the End of the World is produced and edited by the incomparable Zach Rosen. Music for today's show comes from Mother Cyborg, Tunde Olanaran, and Blue Dot Sessions. <laughs>